You are listening to Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Antibiotic Awareness Week series. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Morgan Phillips, pharmacy resident at Sentara RMH. Before we turn things over, let's go over some important CME announcements. This episode has been accredited for AMA PRA Category 1 credits. For detailed accreditation and designation information, along with disclosure information, please visit the show notes. This information can also be found on our website, www.centera.com forward slash physician education, as well as reaching us by email at physicianeducation at centera.com. Now here's Morgan. Hello, everyone. My name is Morgan Phillips. I'm one of the pharmacy residents at Centera RMH. I'm excited to be talking to you all today about decreasing anaerobic coverage in pneumonia for our infectious disease week. Pneumonia is one of the most common conditions encountered in our healthcare system, and we broadly divide it into community-acquired pneumonia and hospital-acquired pneumonia. Our three most common typical pathogens include streptococcus pneumonia, haemophilus influenza, and Morixella cateralis. While strep pneumo is the most frequently isolated, the overall rates are actually trending down given the increase in pneumococcal vaccines. Three of the most common atypical pathogens include chlamydia pneumonia, legionella, and mycoplasma pneumonia. Overall, it's actually very hard, as we know, to isolate a predominant pathogen in pneumonia cases. There are a subset of patients who present with pneumonia in the context of an aspiration event. This may lead to a chemical pneumonitis, which is characterized by shortness of breath, cough, fever, diffused crackles or wheezes, and opacities on chest imaging. In most patients who experience an aspiration event leading to chemical pneumonitis, do not require empiric antibiotics as there's a high rate of spontaneous recovery. However, we do have the occasional patient who experiences aspiration pneumonia with a true infectious component. Now, in the past, we've always predominantly covered for anaerobes. A lot of this stems from some of the research in the 1970s where anaerobes were the predominant pathogen that was cultured in specimens. However, some of our newer microbiological studies show a different picture. Now, the reason why anaerobes were more frequently cultured in the past is unknown. However, there are some postulated ideas, such as changing demographic characteristics, sampling of respiratory cultures earlier than we did in the past, So perhaps in the past, cultures were sampled at a point where the infection had already developed into, say, an empyema or a lung abscess. And so you were more likely to identify anaerobes in these situations. And it's also thought that the use of transtracheal sampling in the past may have affected the microbiological results as well. There was a prospective study that was published back in 2003 in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine 
which looked at the microbial etiology of 95 institutionalized elderly patients who had severe aspiration pneumonia. In 49% of these patients, gram-negative enteric rods were isolated, followed by 16% anaerobes. These anaerobes included Prevotella and Fusobacterium. Additionally, of the 16% anaerobes recovered, 55% had a concomitant aerobic gram-negative rod. Of the patients who grew out anaerobic isolates, seven of these patients did not receive any anaerobic antimicrobial coverage. Despite this lack of coverage for anaerobes, six out of the seven patients still had effective clinical improvement. So it was thought that these cases where anaerobes were isolated were not, perhaps not the predominant organism causing clinical deterioration in the first place. Now this leads us next into 2020 where the CHEST journal published an international multicenter observational study looking to characterize the microbiology and therapeutic patterns of patients with chronic aspiration who were admitted to the hospital for community-acquired pneumonia. Patients were stratified into three groups, aspiration pneumonia, pneumonia with aspiration risk factors, and pneumonia without aspiration risk factors. Of the 2,606 patients who were hospitalized for community-acquired pneumonia, 193 of them, so 7.4%, presented with aspiration pneumonia. Risk factors independently associated with chronic aspiration pneumonia included being male, bedridden, being underweight, a nursing home resident, history of stroke, mental illness, and enteral tube feedings. When identifying anaerobic microbiology patterns, incidence of anaerobic bacteria was similar between the three groups. So pneumonia without aspiration risk was 0%. Pneumonia with risk factors for aspiration was 1%. And then aspiration-related pneumonia was 1.64%. And it was determined that there was no statistical difference between the groups. Interestingly, though, greater than 50% of patients in each group received anaerobic coverage as part of specific, so use of clindamycin or metronidazole, or broad-spectrum antimicrobial therapy, such as zosin, unison, or carbapenem. I would, however, like to note some of the limitations of the study. There is differences in group sizes. So there were 193 patients in the aspiration group, and then 2,413 in the non-aspiration group. They excluded patients with hospital-acquired pneumonia, And they also use various methods for collecting culture samples. And only 25 to 32% of patients in each group had a pathogen identified as the etiology. So in reviewing some of the results, uh, we should take into account some of these limitations when we're applying this to the patients we see in the hospital. In 2019, the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines were updated and they briefly touch on anaerobic coverage in community-acquired pneumonia. Now, prior to these guidelines, the 2007 CAP guidelines 
suggests coverage of anaerobes in, in quotes, the classic aspiration pleuropulmonary syndrome in patients with a history of loss of consciousness as a result of alcohol or drug overdose or after seizures in patients with concomitant gingival disease or esophageal motility disorders. Antibiotic trials have not demonstrated a need to specifically treat these organisms in the majority of community-acquired pneumonia cases. Now, the 2019 guidelines actually suggest not routinely covering for anaerobes in aspiration pneumonia unless an abscess or empyema is suspected or identified. Now, this is a conditional recommendation with very low quality evidence. And the reason why we have this conditional recommendation is because it's taking into account the fact that no clinical trials have been done to assess clinical efficacy of addition versus no addition of anaerobic coverage in suspected aspiration cases. Additionally, this recommendation presumes that infection is present in certain cases of chemical pneumonitis. Antibiotics may or may not be withheld altogether. So the final recommendation is really based on culture sampling data, as I discussed earlier, showing that anaerobes are not as commonly found and the fact that additional use of anaerobic coverage has its risks such as C. diff infection, antibiotic resistant, and adverse medication events. Now with hospital-acquired pneumonia, anaerobes are typically not recommended to be covered in the first place unless we have certain risk factors that we're looking for where we would want anaerobic coverage. So this would include patients who have poor dental hygiene, again, patients who have suspected or confirmed lung abscess or empyema, or clinical worsening while on our standard empiric antibiotics that would include an anti-pseudomonal and anti-MRSA agent. So if a patient presents to the hospital, how would we go about deciding if we want to add anaerobic coverage or not? One review article that was published and which will be attached in my references, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it provides a nice flow sheet for the treatment modalities. So if a patient has a suspected empyema or lung abscess or if they have poor dental hygiene, then we may lean more towards utilization of unison, augmentin, zosin, moxifloxacin, or the carbapenems. And this is specifically in our community-acquired settings. And it's also important to note that the duration when we're treating for lung empyema or an abscess is much longer than our typical community-acquired and hospital-acquired pneumonias. So this may include anywhere from three to six weeks, depending on clinical response. Now, if patients do not necessarily fit the above risk factors, then we would typically want to treat an aspiration-related community-acquired pneumonia as per the typical community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. So use of a beta-lactam with either azithromycin or doxycycline, a respiratory fluoroquinolone, so that would include levofloxacin, uh, plus or minus a beta-lactam, depending on the severity. Really, overall, it's hard to know 100% of the time if anaerobic coverage is needed 
based on the limited information that we have available today. However, if we take into account some of those specific patient risk factors that I touched upon in the study, as well as some of the guidelines, as well as taking into account a patient's risk for adverse events with antibiotics, it can point us towards uh, a more optimal regimen and as well as a more patient-specific regimen. So the reason why we are talking about this particular topic is because it's important to reduce the use of broad-spectrum and potentially more harmful antibiotics to just try and cover those anaerobic organisms. And this will help improve our rates of resistance, improve our rates of C. diff infections, and then also prevent unnecessary medication-related adverse events. So I hope you found this topic to be interesting and something that you can utilize in your practice. So thank you very much for your time today. You've been listening to Sentara Healthcare's Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers. Be on the lookout for the next episode. As a reminder, read today's show notes for information about claiming your continuing education credits. Well, that's it for now, but we'll be back soon with another episode of Vital Signs, a podcast for Sentara providers, the podcast that provides evidence-based education programs for physicians and healthcare providers on the go.